Adventure Games Podcast. My name is Shorsha Dunbar and I'm your host. Thank you so much for joining me for episode 28 of the Adventure Games Podcast. This week I am not joined by Thomas Bex as usual. Instead I am joined by Chris Tihor from Ontario, Canada. Uh, who is a game developer, and he's working long time in the industry as well. So I have an interview with him coming up in just a bit. But first, let's get to the news. So first, the big news, which you may have heard, is that Telltale Games are back. Or are they? Because we found out that earlier this week, uh, two people have purchased... The assets belonging to Telltale Games, these two people are Jamie Ottley and Brian Waddle. Ottley was the founder and CEO of Galaxy Pest Control, which developed games such as Duck Dynasty and Power Rangers, while Waddle previously ran sales and marketing for the Havoc game engine. Now, it's also important to know that these two men were not part of Telltale Games uh, previously, and that not so far none of the original workers at Telltale are working there yet. But Ottilie has said that some workers from the original Telltale games will be offered freelance roles with full-time positions possible in the future. Now we're not sure exactly what's going to happen. Presumably they will try and get the past catalogue of games back online. And we'll see if they do presumably make games in the future. Hopefully, at least some of the previous workers from Telltale can come back. And hopefully they can have full-time positions as well and continue to make uh, the great games that they made in the past. So there is an article on IGN about this with more details, which I will include in the show notes. Next, we have Crowns and Pawns, Kingdom of Deceit which is developed by Tag of Joy. In this game, you play as Milda, a girl from Chicago who unexpectedly received the last will of her deceased grandfather. It appears that she is an heir and the last guardian of a mysterious family secret. Following a handful of obscure hints, Milda is thrown into an adventurous puzzle pack search for the truth. In this game, you explore real locations in the less explored history of Europe, You experience the legendary stories of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, beware the villainous branch of the KGB, solve puzzles and follow hints to reveal the secrets of the king that was never crowned. Now this game, Crowns and Pawns, is inspired by games such as Broken Sword, Still Life and Siberia, and it looks really cool as well. Earlier last week they released a trailer showing some gameplay from the game. They also have their... Steam page where you can see the trailer, some screenshots, more details about the game, and you can wishlist it as well. They plan on releasing it sometime in 2020. They were also at Gamecom where they showcased a demo of the game, and they will be at Adventure X in London this year as well. So they will also have a demo there, so you can drop by and say hi to them if you are there. So looking forward to 
seeing more about this game as we keep my eye on it for a while. Next, we have the castle. Now, in the castle, evil has taken over a small town, but a group of courageous adventurers has decided to organize an expedition to end the feared vampire. Recruit a group of characters to enter the castle and fulfill your mission. But get ready because the castle hides many surprises. So in this game, you need to make a team of three adventurers of seven candidates. There are five different endings and a game will also be available in English and Spanish. It is also very retro style, especially in terms of graphics and is heavily inspired by Maniac Mansion, which you can see from the graphics as well. So this game is out now on Steam. It's already gotten some very good reviews, so look forward to finding out more about the game in future. Next we have Ghost on the Shore. In this game you play as Riley, who escapes her abusive father to sail a rickety boat across the high seas. One night a storm hits and she tries to drop anchor at the deserted Rogue Islands. There she encounters the ghost of Josh, who gets trapped in her head. The only way he can escape from her head is if she is able to help him remember his life and death. So this game is a story exploration game where you play as Riley in the first person and you explore the seemingly deserted island. In this game, you need to make irrevocable choices that shape the bond you're creating with Josh and will ultimately influence the outcome of the game. So you both discover the old islanders' belongings and the stories behind them. Through environmental storytelling, you get a specific sense of what life was like on these islands before people started leaving. As Riley puts it all together, she comes to understand how a family's history led to Josh's tragic death. So this game is set to be released in 2020. In the meantime, you can check out more information on ghostontheshore.com where they have a gameplay trailer and you have more information about the game as well. Next we have Tohu by FireArt Games and in this classic based point and click adventure game, it takes place in a small world based on fish planets floating in an eater. You will explore it with an unusual little girl who keeps a secret. She can turn into a cubus, her alter ego, who can carry big things and make big deeds. So in this game, you will go on a strange, deep and reflective adventure game, adventure rather, and it has a unique graphic style with tons of details. There are dozens of obscure creatures with seven to eight hours of gameplay and is set to be released on Steam on March 2020, but you can wishlist it now on the game's Steam page. That game again is Tohu. And next we have Naughty Crawl, 20,000 Atmospheres. Uh, in this game, you this game takes place entirely in a cockpit of a space vessel, where a stolen enigmatic machine is your only way out. It's likely to kill you, but so will the planet you're escaping. You need to puzzle out how to pilot a naughty crawl to freedom in this unusual atmospheric adventure, or die trying. And this game will be out on 16th of September 2019 on Steam 
so you can check it out it has a steam page so you can check it out there for more information where again you have screenshots and a trailer and more details on it as well so that's naughty crawl 20,000 atmospheres and the links of course will be in the show notes and next we have a kickstarter called relapse the neverland a narrative driven horror adventure game in this game you witness an unfolding path of choices that unravel the lives of the orphans and of a very unlucky amnesiac girl there are multiple outcomes depending on your involvement as the player there's a heavy team of repeating cycles facing fears and learning to let go and forgive relapse to neverland take as taking some inspiration from the game developers favorite games growing up such as clock tower in particular so this game is on kickstarter now it has about three weeks to go and you can find out more information including a trailer and more details about the story and gameplay and what rewards you can get for pledging to support this game as well so that's relapsed in neverland now, a few weeks ago, I reviewed Draugen, which was set in Norway, and now there is another game set in Norway. Milkmaid of the Milky Way is an award-winning rhyming adventure game. What happens when a young milkmaid sees an adventure craft in a fjord in 1920s Norway? In this story-based puzzle game, you play as Milkmaid Roots, who lives alone on a remote farm in a faraway fjord. Then one day a spaceship arrives and turns Ruth's life upside down, sending her on a quest that will change her life forever. Now this game is out now on Nintendo Switch. And now we have the interview with Chris T. Hoare. He, as I mentioned, he is the head of Ironic Iconic Studio. He is a game developer. He's also a partner with Tailspinners, which is a company that helps other developers with narrative and dialogue and story in their games. And he's also the festival chairperson of the Wordplay Conference in Toronto, Canada, which will be happening this November, this 9th and 10th of November 2019. So we speak about all of those things, plus much, much more. So please enjoy. Thank you so much for joining me again for another episode of the Adventure Games podcast. Thomas isn't here this week because I should hopefully be in Greece on holidays, but I uh, am with Chris Tihor. Did I, did I get your name right, Tihor? Tihor, actually, yeah. Tihor. Oh, so sorry. Chris Tihor. H- Hello, Chris. How are you? Hi, Sersha. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. Uh, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, my, my plan is to speak to people from different countries, and so far I'm to I'm every country. So far I'm getting there because you're the first Canadian that I've had on this podcast. Yes, it's good to be so, first. So, so yes. So, as we were talking about stereotypes, you guys, the stereotype is that you guys are nice, and mm-hmm. um, and we Irish are drunk. You know, I'm drunk right now, actually. So. <laughs> Excellent. Um, Excellent. So, so I'm yeah. also drunk. That's why I'm so nice. Cause, uh, <laughs> exactly. Is that is that why you Canadians are nice? Because you're drunk. You're nice drunks. Pretty much. Yeah. I think that's uh, <laughs> that's how it goes. Plus, it's uh, all the uh, maple syrup to sweeten us up a bit too. Right. Right. And uh, and the moose as well there that you <laughs> you have over there. I I hear they're everywhere in Canada. <laughs> 
oh yeah, there's the moose, there's the beaver, you know, we've got wild <laughs> animals all over the place. <laughs> kind of kind of like Ireland then. Well, we have leprechauns. I don't know if you know about that, but... <laughs> oh, I'd heard, yeah. <laughs> um, well, anyway, you are, you've, you're involved in a lot of things. You're um, a chairperson, I believe, for Wordplay Conference, which I mentioned a few weeks ago. You're involved with company Tailspinners, and you make games as well. Uh, mm-hmm. So look forward to speaking to you about all those things. First, I wanted to ask if you could introduce yourself and tell us what your some of your favorite narrative or adventure games are. Sure. Um, yeah, well, I am uh, Chris T. Hoare, and I, um, I'm a writer, I'm a game designer, I'm a programmer. I do a lot of uh, work in video games and uh, some work outside of video games. I am the festival director for the Wordplay Festival here in Toronto uh, that's put on by the Hand-Eye Society, who are a uh, non-profit uh, group that are dedicated towards uh, video games as art and presenting uh, video games as art. So, um, yeah, so went, and the Wordplay is one of their primary initiatives uh, and the idea is that we've, uh, we've teamed up with the Toronto Library to present games that are exploring uh, the use of words in, uh, in, in interesting ways. And we try and kind of keep that as, as like a, a wide net to, so that we can capture all of the, the, the weird and wonderful little games that, uh, that are out there. And uh, of course, Weird Play is part of what we do with that is we have a, uh, a showcase of, of some of these uh, weird and wonderful games too. So, uh, but we can talk about that uh, a little more later. So, as far as narrative games go, like I mean, as a game writer, I've I've got like a million that I love. <laughs> so it's it's hard to narrow it all down. It's kind of like you know choosing your your favorite child or something. But um, <laughs> the I, I wouldn't actually. I'd like to to mention uh, adventure games in particular because uh, some of the games that uh, really struck me early on were adventure games when I was first getting into into video games. And I think probably one that really got my attention was uh, Day of the Tentacle by uh, LucasArts. Um, I remember my brother had uh, gone off to university and uh, he had come back and he had come back with a nice computer, which of course I was very interested in at the time. And he was showing me some of the games that he had, he had uh, got for his computer. And like most of the games I was used to were very like the older ones, they're very pixely and and stuff. And the 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 pure sort of level of artisticness that that came through in uh, Day of the Tentacle, it was like it was like watching and playing a cartoon. It was it was uh, it really blew my mind. And then the fact that it was so weird and and funny and so interestingly written uh it just uh it sucked me right in and so that was i think that was probably the first adventure game that really really grabbed me and uh of course i i loved um lucas arts games and uh, monkey island was uh, that whole series was terrific um i was really thrilled with uh 
Grim Fandango when it came out was probably it's probably one of my favorite games of all time too. So I was I was really happy to see that some of these games were getting remastered and and uh, you could find them in the wild again. So uh, so yeah, and uh, I remember playing Loom as well, which was just uh, also amazing to me because it had that that play element where you had to you had to use use songs as um, as spells. And I just thought that that mechanic was so, so wonderful. And it was one of the few games that I actually played to the end because I played so many games and so few of them I actually managed to finish. And when I got to the end of that game, I was like, oh no, that's it, it's it's done, it's so short. So yeah, that's uh, that's kind of most of my, at, le- at least my early uh, um, love for adventure games. Uh, yeah, no, so... A, a lot of people as well also mentioned, you know, those games, particularly Day of the Tentacle and Grim Fandango. So, mm-hmm. and also as as you mentioned with Day of the Tentacle, that it's like playing a cartoon, which because with the animations as well, with the characters, with the you know, it it feels like you are in in the cartoon as well. And also to with a different time period, you know, they have this, you know, the same locations. Mm-hmm. Three different time periods, and it seems like they're different locations that they don't seem the same as uh, at all. And then the, the use of puzzles in the game as well, that they are part of the story as well. And mm-hmm. um, and then yeah, with Grim Fandango, I think as well it's as well as the writing in that game and the characters, it's a whole world that Tim Schafer created, that it makes you yes. feel that. Uh, you know, it's, ironically, it's living, <laughs> even though it's set in the land of the dead. But I've played that game a few times myself, and I still have to play the remastered version because I always said that the one thing that kind of let Gryffindor down were the controls, that is a bit awkward. But so now mm-hmm. that it's point and click, I uh, want to uh, to see that. But I've never played Loom actually. People, have, I've heard some really good things about it. But um, and with the, with the music puzzles as well. But mm-hmm. uh, no, there were definitely some really, really good choices there. And are there any recent narrative games that you have played and that you haven't worked on that you found really interesting that you want to give a shout out to? I know it's probably oh. a lot. <laughs> there are a few. Because um, we, we seem to be like in a, uh, what, what do you call it? In a um, you know, golden era, I think, at least of narrative games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, one that I've been playing recently that I uh, I really enjoy enjoy is uh, Unavowed, and uh, I, I just um, it's it's funny because I think the whole sort of two D adventure genre is part of it that it, it kind of pulls at the nostalgia for me of like the Lucas Arts games and stuff. So it's that kind of comfort. You know that familiarity that you you have of that that format of game, but um, so that always sort of draws me in initially, and then uh, with Unavowed, it just kept my attention because it was so well realized. Like the characters were were so um, uh, three dimensional, even though they're two dimensional, um, and so yeah, I, I found that they. Uh, it just kept more than anything. I wanted to keep playing to see how 
these characters were going to respond to the the situations that um, that I found myself in in the game. So that's uh, that's definitely uh, one of my recent favorites. Yeah, no, I that that game was actually my favorite adventure game of 2018, and it was a really good year for adventure games last year. But mm-hmm. it's you know again you mentioned the characters and that they're all so three-dimensional and Dave Gilbert himself mentioned this that it seems like people have different favorite characters you know I loved all the characters my personal favorite was Vicky but others she was kind of their least favorite and they they like you know Logan or they like Mandana and Mm -hmm. um, you know so I found that really interesting and the game mechanics as well where you get to choose two other characters to go with you kind of like early Bioware games, but in an adventure game setting, I thought it was fascinating. And it was so well done. And I, mm-hmm. I mentioned this too, Dave. I spoke to Dave Gilbert earlier on in this podcast as well. And mm-hmm. he, uh, he's, he's he's really, really nice guy as well. To top things off, you know, he's, uh, you know, he's, he, he's really down to earth as well. And he would just speak to anyone as well. He's a really great guy, but also really talented as well. So... Um, yeah, no, I've spoken about that game a lot before. And also, the I think the Wajedi games in general, you know, Techno Babylon and the Blackwell games as well, they're mm-hmm. really, really good as well. I think in terms of story and plot and characters, um, they, they do things as well that we don't see very often in other adventure games. That's, um, so, yeah, looking forward to the, to the future as well as Wajedi games. But now going back to you then, uh, so you are, I believe, you're part of the Ironic Iconic Studios. Uh, uh, you're part. So, when did you start working on games yourself? Oh uh, well, Ironic Iconic Studios is my company, and uh-huh. it's, essentially, it's essentially me. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't actually have um, any any other uh, employees. And it's kind of the, it's the company that I'd formed back in uh, 2003, actually, whoa, that's a long time. Um, And I had made it because I was working for a company as a programmer, and we were making uh, games like uh, uh, internet card games. Uh, And um, I found that... Like I had just started getting into games back, like actually making games back then. And I found that even though I enjoyed the programming aspects, the things that I really wanted to do was was to get into the design side of things and to um, to explore narrative in games. And so I decided to make this company to produce my own games that were um, more narrative in, uh, in nature. And I could do my own design work on the side. And since then, like part of it has been me making my own games through Ironic Iconic. And then part of it was just it ended up being a vehicle for uh, for my freelance work in in uh, in games. Cool. And where did the name come from? Just uh, I was just riffing on a bunch of uh, <laughs> things, and then that that just seemed to it had it was snappy, you know, it had that um, a, a good kind of um, rhythm to it, and it seemed to sum up my personality at the time too. So, 
And uh, I remember actually going in to register the name um, at the uh, the government office, and uh, the person who took the form and was looking at it was like, "Ironic, iconic. I like that one." And I'm like, "Yes, that's that's what I want to hear." So, uh, so yeah, that's kind of where it came from. So you mentioned that you uh, you found this back in 2003 that you want mm-hmm. to start. Uh, you know, making your own games and and that. So I see that you've made a couple of games as well. And you've helped other people make games. Um, yeah. Uh, which was the what was the first game that your company or that you made under Ironic Iconic? Um. Well, that that I the company made itself, or because uh, I mean I've, I've helped with a whole whole bunch of other games uh, through the company. Uh, yeah, I, I suppose the first. I suppose you had the first company for the first company, the first game that you worked on, then that you maybe helped mm-hmm. make first, and then how you went on from there. Right. Um, so the very first project I started with, Ironic Iconic, was a cyberpunk role-playing game. But of course, see, and this this is this is. Um, sort of the perfect example of, of what you do when you're a new game developer is you go, I like role-playing games. I'm going to make one of those. And it's like, yeah, I mean, that's a lot more work than you would think. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, so I, I worked on uh, on that on and off for um, for a few years. And then I, um, and then I realized that it was just, uh, scope-wise, it was just too much for, for uh, one person to handle. So... Um, I, uh, I started working on a few few other games just with friends and, and stuff. And uh, I worked on some Game Jam games, uh, which is a great way to, to kind of um, get into practice with making games, is to, to go out to Game Jams and just make a, a game over a weekend with, uh, with some friends or perhaps with new friends that you've just met at the Game Jam. Uh, so... I made one that was called uh, Curse of the Mummy's Brain, which is uh, uh, kind of that... It was meant to be like a 2D platformer game where you you literally play a mummy's brain um, that was... Uh, so, I'm not sure how familiar you are with mummies, but mummies generally <laughs> in Egypt, they, they would... Um, during the process of mummification, they would take out the major organs and they would put them in uh, copic jars um, around the mummified body. And so what happened in this, the story for this game is that the mummy, uh, the body ended up getting stolen by by thieves, tomb, tomb raiders or tomb thieves, and then the brain had to go and try and recover the body from the thieves. So it was kind of running around on little little legs and also trying to recover some of his other organs as he was going along until he could finally recover, you know, his body. So, um, yeah, so that was a lot of fun. <laughs> okay. That's, that sounds very interesting because I was going to ask you that I was going to ask, did, don't they, didn't they take the brains out of the mummies? So <laughs> when the curse of the mummies brain was, yeah, now that you've explained it, it makes sense at least for, for that game. <laughs> that it sounds, it sounds interesting. Yeah. And, and so what what was your experience like making this this first game then? So when you released it then, uh, did, did that 
you know, did, did that help to make you more confident then that, you know, I can actually, you know, make a game, I can release the game now and we can go on and do other things? Well, um, see, when you say released, <laughs> it wasn't exactly <laughs> released and it wasn't fully finished. But what we ended up with was like this nice little prototype that had come out of uh, the Game Jam on the weekend. And having that, like having something in front of you that works, uh, that has like music and graphics and everything that is essentially, you know, the beginnings of a game is very, very confidence boosting. It feels great because you you had this idea and you sat down with a, a few people over a weekend and you made made something that you can point at and say, look, that's a thing that I made. And so uh, game jams were really one of the areas that kind of, or one of the things that really made me feel inspired, like, yeah, you know, I can I can make games. This this is great. So uh, so I hi highly recommend that uh, people who are just getting new into games uh, look into into game jams because not only are you doing it with other people, like you're you're it's a cooperative effort, which I think is one of the great things about making games is that you're actually working with other people to create this this thing um the this this work of art together um but you also have something to show at the end of it and say yeah i did this and uh it it kind of just for me it just uh fueled my resolve to keep making games also i imagine with these game jams that you have tight deadlines from what other people have told me so you mm -hmm. have to release it so you don't work on something and then you leave it there um, because, uh, you know, I heard as well from, I believe it was a film director who said a film is never really finished. So because you keep trying yes. and perfecting it, perfecting it, but at least with game jams, you, you know that you have to release it at this time. Um, so even if you're maybe not completely happy, but just release it and then you yep. have something released. And that, that's, that's one advice that I've heard from other adventure game developers, at least with the first game, to make it small if possible and just get it out there. And just put yes. something out there to show yourself that, yes, I can do this and then go on from there. And no, that sounds interesting. So when you say the game, you know, whenever the game was released, is it released now? Is it playable? Can we play it on the website? I had thought it was on the Global Game Jam website, but I don't think uh, I, it occurs to me that it wasn't during the Global Game Jam. It was during um, a different one that was in Victoria, BC, where I was living at the time, called Orca Jam. So it's not really in a released form anywhere. So it's going to have to stay in the realm of the conceptual at the moment. But um, but with the, uh, the Global Game Jam, which is uh, another one that I'd participated in, at the end of the game jam, everybody loads their a playable version of their game onto the global game jam website, um, which is 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 great because then it's it's available for people to play. And I know that there are a number of other uh, game jams that are are doing that and just making sure that it's available. But unfortunately, this this first first uh, effort of mine is is not not currently available to the public. Okay, well, at least it helped you get your start in game development then and oh yeah so so, so then I, I see that you have worked on other games since then and you've worked on different uh types of games different genres of games correct 
Uh, yes, definitely. So is there any game as well that you worked on that you are particularly proud of after that, that you helped make and you, when you saw it released that you thought, wow, this, this game I think is pretty good? Well, I'm, I'm thinking about it. Mostly... I mean, I'm sure they're all good, but... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I think one of the things that people don't necessarily realize about uh, game developers is that very often the games that you work on don't end up getting released. So... Um, I mean, there there are some, of course, that that I've worked on that have been released, and uh, and I am uh, I am proud of those. But uh, there's also a long list of games that I I am proud of, but have never actually been released, which is is uh, is really unfortunate. But let me think. Or that you find at most interesting. For example, I see one that grabs my attention is Raid World War Two. Uh, I don't know if that game has been released, but. I... It has, yeah. So Raid World War II is is um, is kind of a fun game. It was uh, created by a studio called Lion Game Lion and uh, released by uh, Starbreeze Studios, I believe. And I um, my part in in working on Raid World War II was to do additional dialogue. So it's not a huge part of the game, but it is. Um, it, it, I know that my dialogue is in there in that game, which is kind of cool. And it's um, it's a uh, action-oriented game where you have uh, four players who can play co-op sort of shooter-style game, like first-person shooter, and you you're basically fighting Nazis from uh, behind enemy lines. And uh, the the thing that it most reminded me of was um, there's that movie Inglorious Bastards. Mm-hmm. which is kind of an over-the-top kind of like, you know, running around, shooting Nazis sort of game. And uh, I, I feel like Raid World War II has a lot of that same feel to it. So, um, so yeah, and I was I was really thrilled to see it, uh, see it be released and uh, out in the wild. I'm not sure that it reviewed very well, but a lot of the times that doesn't even matter because you're just like, I worked on that, that game right there. This, this is cool, you know, so it's nice to see it actually get released. Because um, like I said, I've worked on a lot of games that never ended up getting released for one uh, reason or another. And for the most part, it's never been, like it's it doesn't have anything to do with me. It's not my call whether or not it gets released. It's for uh, business reasons or, or somebody else makes the call and it's like, oh, I've worked on this game for months and it's, you know, probably never get seen. And that's just kind of the, one of the realities of the game industry is that you kind of go, yeah, okay, well, there it is. Uh, move on to the next thing and, and see how, how that works out. Right, yeah. It must be hard, though, as you mentioned. You work on a game for months, and then somebody else decides, as you say, for business reasons, oh, no, I don't want to release it now. I want to, you know, do something else. And um, so, so how do you keep yourself motivated then when you work on the next project? You know, not thinking, oh, well, will this game be released now? So how do you keep yourself going? Um, it's it's not always easy, but generally you just kind of cultivate this feeling where it's like you, you just have to sort of separate yourself from the work to a certain degree. Like when you're in it and when you're when you're working on it, then, you know, you're like 
me personally, I'm I'm right into it, and so I'm I'm fully immersed in the process. But once it gets, what's my part of it kind of ends, then I have to kind of go, okay, we're just gonna we're gonna let that go, and we'll see what happens with it, and hopefully, you know, something great happens, and and then I can uh, I can point at it and go, look, that thing I worked on that, you know. Uh, but a lot of times you just gotta kind of leave it and remember kind remember the the feeling that you got when you were working on it and kind of keep that with you and then you know have to it's there's a lot of there's a lot of letting go <laughs> with with the game industry I feel yeah, no, I I can imagine. So, but um, okay, so now we can talk about the, maybe I believe it's your first self-published game, Mandatory Upgrade X Marks the Spot. Uh, yes. What, so, what can you tell us about this game? What first of all, what's the story behind this game? Um, the story behind the game, or what's the plot of the game? Oh, okay. Um, so the plot of this game is that you are a special agent who is investigating a suspicious death at a government facility in the near future in Canada. And um, so the idea is you, you have to investigate the, the murder scene. You have to... Um, you have to talk to uh, people who are involved and try and get the answers that you need to be able to uh, track down who's responsible. So that's okay. a kind of in a nutshell. Okay. So it's yeah. a, kind of like a Canadian spy story? or Sort of. Like I was going for a sort of near future sci-fi, you know, sort well, of yeah. cyberpunk approach. <laughs> sort of um, style game, but I was trying to do it in a way that was um, a little different from your standard sort of um, classic cyberpunk approach. But uh, I hope it still has those sort of elements of like um, noir and it being a, a bit of a thriller. And, uh, you know, I love technology. And so I love to, uh, I love to put technology into, into, um, to my games where appropriate obviously sure yeah and then if you can talk about it without giving any spoilers in what way did you try to make the game different to the average sci-fi or cyberpunk story um well i just sort of looked at what sort of elements are considered to be cyberpunk or what what sort of defines what cyberpunk is and for me, a lot of it was technology being used in ways that it wasn't intended to be. Um, and it's sort of on a thematic level, there's that. And this also this, this idea that you are, as an individual, you're kind of overwhelmed by all of these large entities, whether they're governments or corporations or whatever, who have so much control in your life. And so it's this idea of trying to find uh, 
your own um, your own sovereignty, I guess, within these structures of these these giant sort of faceless entities of corporations and stuff. So those are a few of the themes that I wanted to bring into uh, this game. But some of the the other stuff, which is more of um, what people in general think of when you they think of cyberpunk would be things like um, cybernetic limbs and and stuff like that. So I, I made a decision just not to have cybernetic implants at all in people because it occurred to me at some point it was like like who would who would willingly do that? Like, <laughs> like I feel this, a bit weird, right? <laughs> yeah, it's like well, I've, I've got this perfectly good arm. Why would I hack it off and put on a you know a robot arm? I mean, even though you might be able to you know punch through a wall or something like that, it's it's still that actual moment of like yes, please take my arm off and put another one. I I think most people would sort of balk at that, and and I sort of recognize that the idea is that it's the cyberpunk thing is. Things have come to such an extreme that nobody would would uh, blink an eye at, like you know, replacing limbs or or something like that. But I I, I kind of wanted to go a different direction with it, and so I was looking at where technology was going, and I saw a lot of stuff about uh, VR and AR. Uh, I saw a lot of stuff about um, wearable technology. And this idea of sports outfits that give you a boost. And I remember reading an article a while ago where people were like, uh, I forget who actually wrote this, this article, but the thing that struck me about it was in the article they said, we, we are cyborgs, we're already cyborgs. Because have you looked at what you know, uh, running shoes look like now? they're built in such a way that they're trying to take the natural form of the human body and boost it through different fabrics and construction to actually give you, you know, uh, allow you to, to run faster or, or better or jump higher or, or that. So I had this idea that it's like, oh, let's, let's, let's take that further and have this idea that everybody is wearing like these performance enhancing outfits because everybody is i mean you you look you walk down the street and you look and there's there's all sorts of people who aren't necessarily um athletes but they're wearing these high-end athletic shoes so it was i was kind of just was riffing on that and i came up with this idea of of augwear which is essentially augmented um, clothing that gives you a natural boost to your your physical uh, abilities, and then the idea that uh, somebody, people were were taking that, and they were they were u- using it on the street, or they were boosting it by stealing other technology, and so you end up with these people who are wearing like these these enhanced outfits. Um, that are ha- enhanced beyond what the original manufacturers were looking at, and uh, and they're they're using them to, to for whatever they need to do, like in their lives. So that was kind of what I was riffing on with with the 
technological aspects of that game anyways. That sounds very interesting. Um, yeah, I had another guest on the podcast a few months ago called Chris Miller, and he's also really big into cyberpunk, as in really, really big into it. Mm. Uh, he, he made a game called Neo Feud. I, don't know if you, I haven't played it myself yet, but Thomas, who uh, works on a podcast with me, he played a game and he loved it. And he, Chris Miller, uh, he has his own podcast where he speaks to people who write cyberpunk and make cyberpunk games usually as well. Oh, cool. And he actually spoke with the author William Gibson. Don't know if you're if you've heard of him. I'm sure you have, but oh yes, yeah. Well, now I have I've I've heard of him, but I have never read any of his books. But he was a particular inspiration for Chris Miller. And mm -hmm. so, you know, and he said that he was even arguing with some people about what exactly cyberpunk is. So I, I don't get involved in that because I, while I'm into it, I, there are people who know more about it than I do. So, <laughs> and uh, actually, fun, 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 funny story, uh, I asked him if he had any advice to people who wanted to be adventure or narrative game developers full time. And he said, best advice he can give is marry a Canadian because they're they're ah. really very very nice about it and they'll help you. And that's what he did. So, oh, um, nice. so so yeah. So that's uh, well. It sounds really interesting. What you're what you're saying. So then, what type of game then is mandatory upgrade? Is it an interactive fiction or is it a point and click game or what type of game is it? Yeah, that, I mean that's a good question. So. Um, it was released in 2016, and it was released on a, uh, a platform uh, created by a company called One More Story Games, and the platform's called um, Story Worlds. And uh, it is kind of a point-and-click style game. Um, I say that, but it's uh, very... It's not that kind of standard approach where you have your your avatar like on the screen as a, a little guy walking around and you you click and they move around the screen. It's more sort of um, you maneuver by clicking around on a map and then you're told who's in the area and so then you can talk to those people or you can you can use your drone to like sort of scan around the area or you know you can do. Uh, various things once you're moving sort of from location to location and um, I I enjoyed the process of working with uh, One More Story Games as they had developed the the game engine for um, for Story Worlds and I think I was the first one who was working with them to release a game that um, that wasn't internal to them, so uh, I helped them a lot with their uh, their beta testing of their technology, and they also um, connected me with uh, somebody who provided uh, some artwork for the game, mostly sort of character portraits and and stuff. And um, I had a friend who uh, I knew he made electronic music, and so he. Uh, agreed to to make some music for the game, and so it all kind of it all came together uh, fairly well. And uh, I think it was like a nine month um, development cycle for that game, uh, where I was working uh, part time on that game, and I was working full time on uh, another job. So uh, by the time I got to the end of that that uh, 
that cycle, I was uh, I was pretty done. <laughs> I was pretty tired. Uh, but I was really happy to get it uh, released. And then um, it ended up uh, winning an award, um, just like a, a local Toronto-based organization called, uh, at the time they were called Toronto Game Dev, devs um and they had a, a website uh and every year they would vote on toronto area games to you know say is what which is the best and so that one won like best game of 2016 which i was really proud of congratulations thank you thank you um <laughs> they're now called canadian game devs as they have expanded to include more of uh, more of the country but um yeah so i enjoyed that and I was happy to release it, and uh, I was definitely happy to get the award. But in the intervening time, I decided that I wanted to... It, see, this kind of comes back to where you had said that, you know, um, uh, filmmakers will say that the film is never really finished. Like, you just have to know when to let it go and release it. And so that sort of happened with uh, Mandatory Upgrade. But then I kind of decided that I wanted to do like an upgraded version of mandatory upgrade. So I've been working on, uh, I've been working with unity, which is a, a game development platform. And, uh, I've made more of a, um, I've made a new version of it. That's not, not quite finished yet, but, uh, I hope to release it. And it's, it's more sort of portable, like, it's a it's kind of a port to PC and Mac is where I've got to start. But the the problem that I had with One More Story Games was that you had to run and you, you had to go through their platform to play the game, and their platform was primarily through web browsers. And I wanted to be able to play it offline or have, let people play it offline and stuff. So I decided to make this new version myself. But then I'd also kind of in the intervening years, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I think I think I could improve this area or I think I could improve this or, um, you know, and so I've actually redesigned the game to a certain degree where there is more graphics to it. So there are more I have sort of background graphics and then I have it's almost sort of like a visual novel style um, game now, but. The story, the essential story is the same. It's just kind of a um, um, a bit fancier looking now. So, so yeah, that's it's, that's what yeah, I've been doing. It's an upgrade on mandatory upgrade, you could say. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, sorry. That was a yeah, terrible was, joke, I know. but <laughs> Well, although I was considering releasing it as the upgraded version or, you know, <laughs> the upgraded cut just to... Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely could play, play on the on the title. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, I love uh, I love terrible puns. So I'm oh, just... me too. We I mean we we could do the whole episode on terrible puns, but I, I'm not sure how many people would want to listen to that. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah. So no, again, it sounds sounds really cool. And wh when do you think you may release it for PC? Do you have any time frame at all, or just when it's done, or when it's as close to being done as it can be. Well, I'm I'm hoping to at least release a demo in the next, I don't know, three to six months. But again, it's one of those things where I'm working on it on the side and so and it's a, a bit more of a, a labor of love. 
So it is definitely in the realm of when it's done, it's it's going to be released. Right. Okay. And is there is there are there any choices you have to make in the game with regard to dialogue or are there any puzzles or any action sequences in the game? Uh, there are a couple puzzles. Um, the the sort of primary mechanisms, like uh, mechanics in this game, are revolve around uh, conversations and talking to people and basically unlocking topics to talk about with other people. So there's a lot of conversation. It's a very kind of conversation-heavy game. Um, but you also do have a drone that you have to that you can use to um, to scan certain areas and stuff to try and come up with clues. And you have a uh, you have an AI companion who's with you, and um, uh, she basically can give you some hints about stuff. She can provide information uh, about different people that you may not know yourself, and. Um, and she's also kind of a, uh, you know, snappy-talking sidekick character, too, so. Okay. That's, uh, so it's uh, sort of demo will hopefully be released in the next couple of months or so, but meantime, this game is available through the Story Worlds platform, then. Yes. Um, okay, well, I'll, I'll be sure to put links on the show notes, but... Now, you mentioned it's a conversation-heavy game and there's a lot of dialogue, and that brings me on to the next kind of topic, because you also, mm-hmm. one of the things that you've done recently is you appeared on PC Gamer, in an article in PC Gamer, where you spoke about, uh, well, the title of the article is The Evolving Art of Dialogue in Games. And mm-hmm. and I spoke to a few different people because... You know, as, as we play games, any narrative games, I'm sure we know that there are different types of dialogue systems in the games and different types, and companies always changing and upgrading and improving the way the dialogue is done in games. Because it's, it's not easy, from what I can tell, from what I've heard from developers, and just adding dialogue to games, because you have the conversation trees, which, especially for adventure games, which some people love, mm-hmm. other other developers that I've spoken to really don't like that because it's they say it's not really natural in that. Now I don't I don't mind it. I liked it as well. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, and also I wanted to mention I don't know if you you've seen this as well. I've mentioned this a few times. Uh, John Ingold, who is I think uh, who works in Inkle Studio. I don't know if he's the head of the studio, but he made Heaven's Vault. Yep. Uh, which was released this year. And T- Thomas, by the way, said this, this was one of his favorite games of all time. And he, John Ingle gave a talk at Adventure X in London last year. And he mm-hmm. spoke about dialogue in games. And the video went viral because he used different examples. He used, for example, uh, an ex- examples in Assassin's Creed Odyssey. And he mentioned that overall he liked this game, but the dialogue wasn't really innovative. And he gave examples. And then okay. he used examples in Blade Runner, the movie, and then how you could make that dialogue into a video game and how to make it innovative and feel natural and that. So um, I would definitely recommend to to watch it if you have any interest in dialogue in games because it, it kind of blow my mind. I was like, oh, yeah, why doesn't everybody do this? But ba- back to you when you were appeared for this uh, interview, 
uh, I suppose my question is how how do you put dialogue in games? What do you think is the best way, or one of the best ways to put dialogue in games and try and make it flow naturally? Uh, do you think there's any one way, or are there different ways depending on the game? Again, it sort of depends on what your intentions are for the game, because there are games that just want simple dialogue that uh, that's fairly linear, and they just want to move the story forward through the dialogue. And then other games are built around the idea of dialogue having a lot of different choices. And the problem with having dialogue that has a lot of different choices is that you have to have a... Comp- a complex enough system underneath it to be able to deal with it in such a way that seems natural and makes sense. So when I say that, it's it's kind of... You you want players to feel like the conversation you're, you're having feels like a natural one, that things aren't kind of forced and that there's a certain rhythm to the conversation that feels like a is just a, a conversation that two people might be having. Um, or it feels like the the thing that you're trying to emulate. So if you're trying to make an action movie style game, then your dialogue dialogue is going to match that kind of action movie feel or uh, any other genre like that. You want it to to match the genre that you're you're going for. So the dialogue that sounds natural in a a noir gangster type movie is is going to feel uh, out of place in something that's more like a, um, a true true to life story or something like that. So those are things that you have to keep in mind when you're when you're writing dialogue. Uh, the other thing is that it's important to be succinct with the dialogue that you write. I know myself when I start writing dialogue, I'm kind of like, all right, so here's it's, it's here's the two characters and they're like, "Oh, hi, how are you? Oh, how are you? Have you been well?" and you you kind of have those social niceties that you actually have in a real conversation. And that's fine for a real conversation, but it's not that interesting for a dramatic piece you want to kind of get right to the the heart of things um it's that thing where you never you you never see people say goodbye on the phone you know when they're talking in in a movie or something like that and um in normal life you're talking on a phone you have a conversation even if it's an intense conversation you usually end up with like okay well i'm going now bye you know sort of thing and that hardly ever happens in in movies and stuff because they you don't it just um it kind of derails the the velocity of of whatever it is that you're you're showing so um so those are other things to think of Yes, no, that that's true. Or if you're Irish and you say goodbye about a hundred times, <laughs> and then you're still talking even after that. So, but that will go on and on forever. But, um, but yeah, no, definitely with and, and as I said, you know, there, there have been different dialogue systems and different ways that we see dialogue in games, and even outside of adventure games, I think other types of games have 
being mm-hmm. very in- innovative. For example, Mass Effect, the first Mass Effect, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's, I think it's the wheel that they use and that you could think about what you were going to say while the other character was talking. It's kind of like real life, that while the other person is talking, we're still thinking about, okay, how am I going to respond? What am I going to say now? And that felt you know, kind of realistic. Mm-hmm. And another example I saw, again, was in the Uncharted series. In the latest Uncharted, Uncharted 4, there was a couple of times you know, when you're driving around and Sully is talking, and then you know something happens that interrupts you, and you know that's and then you think, okay, in most games, they would finish with that dialogue, it cuts off, but then once you go back on the road and Sully would say, so as I was saying, and then he starts talking again, and I felt, wow, this, this is really feels natural, and um, and I don't know if you played the games. Now to give two examples from the same developer. The two games that I really liked, actually, but I don't know if you ever mm-hmm. played The Longest Journey when it was released. Or it was... I know I didn't actually. It's now I I personally love that game. It's a sci-fi, but for you know a lot of people have mentioned one of the big issues with the, with the game is there is a lot of dialogue, but I also think the way that the dialogue is used is just again as I mentioned with the conversation trees and then the characters just give a lot of monologues. Now, I still love the game, but I do recognize that, okay, maybe less is more. But I think mm-hmm. Ragnar Tornquist, the developer, has really improved since then because his latest game, Draugen, again, mm-hmm. while it had some kind of minor issues, you could say, I think the dialogue was really, really great between the two main characters. And there was one moment where it's an intense scene and, you know, the, the female character is not happy with you. And uh, so it's a first person game. And you, during the game, uh, you could walk around and look elsewhere while she's talking, and that's fine. But at that moment, if you look away, she will then stop what she's saying and she will say, Hey, look at me when I'm talking to you. And then you look back at her again, and then she continues <laughs> shouting at you. But I was like, Wow, nice. again, this felt really real because who hasn't been in that situation? <laughs> and it's kind of great in that it's actually reacting to. You, what you're doing and so many games uh don't and it's right. quite like i i think i was playing uh i was playing this uh mmo the other day uh called neverwinter which is like basically like dungeons and dragons online type thing and um i was i'd been through this these areas before with other characters so i was like not really paying at that close attention so i would go and talk to somebody and they would start saying, well, that was quite the fight against the dragon. And da, 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 and they had this whole long monologue. But I was already like, okay, well, I got the reward and I'm just running away. And so <laughs> I walk <laughs> off to do something else and they're still giving their monologue. But it's it's like, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm not, not listening anymore. And right. it always strikes me as kind of funny <laughs> because it's, you know, that's that's just a, the, the way that the, the game was made and programmed. And it's also understandable because to have that level of reactiveness in a game is, um, there, I mean, there, it's a lot of work to put that in there, right? Um, on a uh, kind of design and uh, technical level to have that, that level of reactiveness. So I understand why it's, it's not done. I especially understand why it's not done in like MMOs where you've got like, thousands of people all online and, and 
dealing with it. And so they can't really pay that much attention to what uh, any individual is doing. Um, and you often see these these uh, videos of people goofing around in video games where it's like very serious subject matter and somebody is saying, you know, talking about some murder or something. And then the person in the video game is like, gets up on the person's desk and starts jumping around and dancing and stuff like that. And, and of course, the game's not responding to that at all. And so it, it ends up being that kind of, uh, yeah, uh, funny situation. Right. Yeah, that's... And that's one of the reasons why I particularly like that moment in Dragon, mm -hmm. where the the other character says, "Hey, look at me when I'm speaking to you," because she was reacting to what I was doing. That I was just going off somewhere, not listening to what she was saying, and then she just stopped what she was saying. I thought, "Okay, this feels very real, and the characters feel very real to me now." So, yeah, and I uh, bet you listened to what she was saying. After yes, that. yes. No, I, <laughs> I felt like I was there. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> And um, no, because and I can. I mean, I'm I'm not a game developer myself, but I can under. I I can guess that it must mm -hmm. be really complex, really difficult to input. You know, like character reactions in the game like that, and it's difficult to put natural, free free flowing dialogue. And I spoke when I spoke with Dave Gilbert about Unavowed, and he's saying that he basically kind of made the game about five or six times because when you choose different characters. And I played mm -hmm. through it twice, and I chose different characters because I was sure that some of the dialogue would be the same because it's natural, it happens mostly. But no, mm -hmm. in Unavowed, depending on which characters you choose, the dialogue is different, and it's different yeah. between the two characters. And that's another thing that I really, really liked about it, to show the extra mile that he went to to make the game. And... Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, there's... That article on PC Gamer is really... Interesting. I would recommend anyone to to read it and to watch a video by John Ingold. Again, I'll put the links on the show notes. I could spend all day talking about it, but um, you know, we probably don't have that much time. But you're also uh, involved in. We spoke before a little bit. You're involved with another company called Tailspinners. Now, I've been uh -huh. wanting to talk to somebody involved with this company uh, for a while because I find what you guys do really interesting. So mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could explain, you know, what, what exactly do you guys do? What does Tailspinners do uh, with video games? Oh, uh, well, essentially... Or in general. <laughs> yeah, no, we're... Um... We're a, uh, a cooperative of uh, freelance uh, game writers. And so we, we basically provide writing, uh, narrative design, and story consultancy for, uh, for games and interactive media. So um, that can be writing dialogue in a, for a, a game that, that exists. That can be what, we, what we've often done with uh, our clients is that they'll come to us, they'll have an idea of what kind of story they want in their game. Um, usually because they've, they've already worked out some of the other elements of the game and then they're like, oh yeah, and we've got this character and we want them to kind of be doing this thing and there's that. And they have some ideas about what they want for the story, but they're not really 100% sure of, of where they're going with it. And so what we do is we usually work with them to come up with some, some ideas of... Um, the direction that their story can go. I mean, that can take the form of just an online discussion, like uh, say, you know, calling them up on, on Skype or 
or what have you, and just kind of going over some of their ideas and then maybe pitching a few things to them and going back and forth like that. Uh, but another thing that we've, we've been doing too is we ac we've actually offered um, like two-day workshops where we'll either um, come on site to their, their studio location and work with them directly there, or we've started doing um, a few workshops online with with our clients, where we'll uh, we'll do essentially do do the same sort of thing, but we'll do it in such a way that um, we can kind of dive deep into what their game is about and what they want their story and their game to be about. And by the end of the workshop, they usually have a pretty good idea of where they want to go with that. And then if they want us to continue helping with it, we can. Or if they're confident enough to go go on their own, then they can do that too. So, Okay, and is this uh, worldwide? Because you mentioned you go to the studios or the workplaces themselves. Is this mm -hmm. worldwide or only in certain countries? Um, well, it all depends, really. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> if... Um, if you happen to have a studio in Australia or something and you want us to come out to your studio, I mean, we're going to have to uh, get you to cover the costs of, of <laughs> sending us there. So um, so it tends to be a lot easier if the studios are nearby where our members are or um, because we've started doing it online too, uh, it's basically anywhere that has a, a fairly reliable internet connection. We can uh, we can theoretically do a, a virtual uh, workshop online for you. Okay, uh, cool. And is it based in the UK then? Yeah. Well, our um, our company was founded in uh, Wales, actually. Okay. By uh, uh, Ian Thomas and uh, Giles Armstrong were the the founders of the company and. Uh, a little while ago, uh, Giles went off to um, to pursue uh, other interests, and Ian asked myself and uh, the other partners if we were interested in in um, in partnering up and joining Tail Spinners as partners and kind of moving forward in that way. And that's when we became a cooperative because initially I think it was more of a you know sort of standard um, partnership, and uh, but we've changed change it to a cooperative just to make it a little um, uh, easier to have sort of multiple cooks. Right. <laughs> okay. And now you mentioned that uh, you helped them, you know, you know, at the beginning of the process and to decide that they want to, if you want you to help them, they can. So mm -hmm. do you, do you help them like through each stage of the writing, like how to form the ideas and then the narrative and the dialogue and then, during the making of the game, and that, so then can someone else, if they have written for the game, if they finish writing, can they come to Tailspinners and ask you to read it and then give advice on that as well? Is that something else you provide? Oh yeah, I mean we're pretty flexible in how um, how we can help people. I mean, to some, for some clients, we've been involved like sort of from the beginning and pretty much to the end of the creation of the game. Sometimes they just need that boost at the beginning to figure out uh, what direction they want to go uh, story-wise. Sometimes they've already figured that out and they just want us to do um, like an editing pass on 
on the uh, the text in the game, whether it's it's dialogue or whatever, because we we've done editing f uh, before. Um, we've worked with companies that um, have done English translations of games that were written in uh, languages that that weren't English to start with, um, and so we've been able to uh, smooth out the the dialogue uh, in a lot of cases. Um, so yeah, we've, we've been in, involved in all stages of the process and uh, don't really have a, a problem with, uh, with jumping in wherever you need us, basically. Cool. So say if somebody from Ireland wanted to write a story about an Irish guy making an Adventure Games podcast, you could help that person make it interesting. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> now, theoretically speaking, of course, but... <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, no, that sounds cool. So whatever ideas you have, uh, you can they can come to you guys, they can come to Tailspinners, and you can help them uh, with it. So it sounds good. And I believe Ian was at Narrowscope in Boston, which is where I was. Unfortunately, get a chance to speak with him, but mm -hmm. I see I see that he gave a talk as well, uh, which I didn't see unfortunately. But there's a I think there's there a video on it. I think or is there? Yeah, uh, I think there is actually. And oh, I okay. So I... exactly what it was. was it writing writing for horror games? Or... Yes, ma making horror. Uh, Narasco twenty nineteen. I'll see if I can provide a link to that. So um, so that that's cool. And okay, no, because uh, I've heard something about it, but it sounds really interesting. And have you have you worked on any adventure games, or are you working on any adventure games through Till Spinners that I mentioned, or is it mainly? Well, other types of games, like you mentioned, I think Raid, uh, World War Two, that we spoke about before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, so there is there's Raid. We've worked on all sorts of different games. I mean, one of the games that I worked on was um, uh, I did some some editing work for uh, for Train Valley Two, and that's basically a game where you uh, you set up a bunch of railroads. It's, so it's like a sort of railroad simulator. Type game, and that was that was fun. What else? I'm trying to think because I know that one of our one of our writers is working on an adventure game right now. I think it's called it's Helheim Hassel. Helheim Hassel. No, I've haven't heard of that yet. Well, now I have, but mm -hmm. yeah, I, I uh, I'm not working on it myself, but uh, one of our um, of our partners, Michelle, is working on it. Michelle Cloth. So she could probably tell you more about that. But yeah, I mean, we've we've worked on all sorts of different games, and some are more narrative he heavy than others, and some are kind of closer to classical uh, adventure games than others. The funny thing with the uh, with the game industry too is that often you aren't really allowed to speak about some of the games that you're working on. Right. That's what I was thinking actually after I asked that question. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Because I mean, there's a few that I'm working on that I'm really excited about, and I, I can't wait to uh, to talk about it. But uh, I'm not allowed to for for a little while. Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, one of them involves a uh, um, a literary detective uh, who's fairly well known, and so I'm uh, I'm really chuffed about that one. So I'm I'm uh, looking forward to being able to talk about that. Yeah. I've been working on uh, recently. More recently, I worked on a game called uh, Cryptant, and it's kind of a first-person shooter horror-type game by uh, Orkari Games. And um, with them, I 
basically been helping them edit the dialogue because they're based in, I think, I think they're located in Vienna. And so they wanted some help with uh, uh, the, the characters and their mannerisms and stuff and to make them a bit more, um, I think they're American characters. So I'm okay, able to, right. yeah. So I was able to so, kind of write for an American voice more, even though I, I'm not American. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, being in Canada, you, um, we're so closely tied with, uh, with our American neighbors and we get so much of, uh, their media up here too. So it's not, it's not that difficult <laughs> to write for an American <laughs> voice. It is far as we're so fam familiar with, uh, with the U S um, that, uh, and I mean, we're, we're pretty close. I sometimes say that the, the, um, the big difference between Canadians and Americans is, is just, we're more polite and less likely to have a gun. <laughs> what you guys are most likely to have a gun. We're less likely to have oh, a less gun. likely. Oh, that's <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know huge amount you know about Canada or even you know yet I've only been there first time but yeah I suppose yeah uh, <laughs> and I'd pr probably more more bears in Canada but <laughs> yeah, there are quite a few bears in Canada um but <laughs> I I think there are a lot of um wild areas in the states too uh still right. or you're going to have uh you're going to have bears and stuff as well so Okay, well... Uh, They're big countries. Yes, both those countries are very big. And I'm actually still shocked because growing up, I always thought that Canada was a small country, but it's only in the last couple of years that I realized, wow, it's actually a pretty big country. It's, it's, oh, yeah. You know, it's, it's not small at all. <laughs> but, no, um, it's... it's um, is it the second largest country by landmass or something? Yeah, wow, okay. I did not know that either. So, um, okay, well, now, now, speaking of Canada, I know that there are a lot of Canadian listeners of the podcast, mm -hmm. and you're also, now, so that, that is tail spinners as well, so any developers of games who want some help or advice on the, on the narrative side of the game, or what games you make, uh, you can contact tail spinners. Again, I'll include the show notes, but I believe the website is at tailspinners.co.uk. I believe yep, that sounds right. Yeah, and then you can contact uh, you guys through there. But speaking mm -hmm. of of Canada, and you got you're also as we mentioned the festival director of Wordplay, which is a conference which you spoke about at the very beginning of yep. the of this episode. And um, so so yeah. So first of all, I wanted to ask if you could. Let us know when was Wordplay first introduced? When did it start? And what exactly are the objectives of Wordplay since uh, you know since now you're the festival chairperson? Right. Okay. Um, so <laughs> I think this is the seventh one. Mm -hmm. So the first one was 2013, I think. Um, and I've been involved with Wordplay... This is this will be my third. Okay. Um, yeah, and uh, previous to generally, it's it's always it's been in Toronto. Although the year before uh, I took over, 
um, there was uh, wordplay was being held at the British Library in uh, London, which is uh, is pretty cool. Cool. Okay, so that's <laughs> so it's, it was it was one year in the British Library, or before that, it was all it was in British Library in London. Uh, it was just at the British Library in 2016. Previous to that, it was uh, it was still held in Toronto. But uh, okay. I think we took it on the road for one year. Unfortunately, I wasn't involved with that one because because uh, I would have uh, I would have loved to take a trip to London. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, the British Library is a is a really cool building. I actually um, what I think last time I was in London, I visited there, and it's uh, it's it's pretty neat. Part of it was that I found there was um, all of these handwritten manuscripts that they have in the little museum area, and so. Um, they were, it was like handwritten manuscripts by authors and also um, uh, sheet music written by like famous composers. And it's kind of amazing how much of the personality of the, uh, the author or the composer actually comes through in the style of their handwriting. So Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's um, just a little tangent there. But... Um, Back and to, also, it's uh, British libraries where the Adventure X is held. So that's so true. Yeah, that there as well. And it is massive. But yeah, so uh, this year wordplay is in the Toronto Reference Library, I believe. Yep, that's right. So uh, that's that's where uh, we've traditionally been hold, holding it, and it's a it's a great, uh, beautiful building. Um, we have a there's a stage set up in the atrium section. And uh, it's uh, it's kind of uh, amazing just the because in this atrium there's all these sort of curved balconies that kind of rise up to the roof and I think there's like five or six stories of these balconies it's so it's it's uh, it's quite impressive um, and so we're kind of right in the heart of this library uh, and giving our our um, our talks and presentations and we have a space. Um, for that, we have a space where we have the the game showcase set up, which basically people have uh, will enter their their games into the showcase, and uh, and then we have a jury who decides uh, which ones we're going to put into the showcase, and that that's like an arcade that's open for people to play uh, during the entirety of the festival, and then we also have spaces for running uh, workshops and uh, and stuff. At least that's kind of how we were doing it in the past. This year, we're actually expanding it into two days because it was a single day festival. And uh, this year, it's kind of like all of the presentations and stuff are on one day and then all of the workshops and more hands-on activities are going to be on uh, on the Sunday. So uh, I'm pretty excited about it because uh, it's uh, we, we've had um, sort of larger and larger uh, crowds of people coming out uh, each year, and uh, I think it's time to kind of grow it out to uh, to two days. Yeah, that's how I believe as well. The Adventure X started it started off very very small, but mm-hmm. in the last couple of years it has just expanded. And I think last year was the first time they charged money for it. Uh, they had a Kickstarter, and now they you know they sold it. And now this year when they put out tickets back a few weeks ago. They mm-hmm. they sold out within a couple of hours. It looks like wordplay is also expanding to two days as well, as you mentioned that you're expanding. Mm-hmm. It's just more and more people going as well. 
and you have it sounds pretty cool so you have people giving talks as well and you have um workshops and you have games being demonstrated uh there as well and as well what what type of talks do you guys have uh, or have you had in the past oh uh we had uh, talks that kind of run the gamut i mean we, we um we're looking for people to obviously to kind of focus on the main ideas of um wordplay which is the use of uh interesting use of words in games um but it turns out that uh, that's been happening in all sorts of different game genres on uh, different levels so initially we were kind of more focused on interactive fiction and uh we still have quite a lot of interactive fiction presented in our showcase but it's also expanded into other areas where um, it might be more like uh, your traditional adventure games, or it might be visual novels, or it might be uh, more mainstream types of games. But um, I think it's just a reflection of what's happened in the world of games where narrative has become much more important and sought after in games and people sort of recognize now the uh the importance of that and of course with narrative comes uh words because um i mean we, you do have quite a few games out there that uh don't have words but are very um have a lot of story to them just through uh the events that happen in the game and um environmental storytelling and stuff so and those are great, and I, I love I love those games too. Um, but we are sort of exclusively focusing on on games that that feature uh, words, whether it's spoken or written words. Okay. And then with the game submissions, uh, do you, can you tell mm-hmm. us what games have appeared or what in the past? What games have people have been able to play uh, there in the past uh, events in the past few years? Sure. Um, well, I'm just looking at last year's uh, lineup of games, and a couple of the ones that uh, that showed up are um, Hypnospace Outlaw. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I think a pretty big release this year. I haven't played it, but I've heard very good things about it. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think it was. Um, I think it had won some awards recently too, um, which happened after it was in in wordplay. So it's. It's it's great because we feel like I feel kind of like hey yeah uh, sure you're giving them awards now but they were <laughs> yeah, they were at our festival not that long ago um, yeah, they started over here so <laughs> yeah yeah and um, one of the uh, one of the writers for the game um, I, I hope I not, don't get his name wrong but it's uh, uh, Zalavier uh, Nelson Jr. he um, he actually came out last year and gave a talk um, about what did he talk? He talked about working as like a teenager and basically like mowing lawns for cultists. And <laughs> sounds interesting. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, here we go. So his his talk was called "I Was a Teenage Acolyte: What Mowing Lawns for a Cult Taught Me About Narrative Design." I that would definitely really go to that talk. talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. And then he um, he also ran 
a uh, a game um, in the, uh, the more sort of uh, interactive part of uh, the program. And uh, the game was called Despite Your Rage, You Are Still a Rat in a Cage, Nicholas Cage, who is suspending you over a pit of lava with his former servant, Igor. <laughs> okay, yes. <laughs> yes, so you can imagine that that was, uh, that was quite a, um, a wild and surreal kind of uh, a game. And I, he involved, like, audience members and ha had a, a good... It was sort of like a... Uh, collaborative storytelling game um, with audience members. And, and that, that was a, a pretty wild uh, from what I recall too. So, Good. Sounds like a, a lot of fun. And, um, mm -hmm. and I, be I believe, uh, now I haven't spoken to her yet, but I'd love to in the future, Julia Mina Mata, the developer of the Crimson Diamond. I believe she was there, I think. I don't know if you heard of her game. It's a... Typing parser game that uh, that she's making. Yeah, yeah, uh, I think that was in our showcase uh, last yes. year, wasn't it? I think so. Yes, and then Weird Water tastes like wine. The mm -hmm. developer I could see was there, and then going back over previous years, I can see that he was had a discussion on Kentucky Route Zero, which again was another very popular game. So yep. really, really popular games and developers that are going there. <laughs> I have to see if I can make it. I'll have to see, you know, see if I can budget somehow, <laughs> scrape through. Yeah, um, well, I, I hope you can. I, it's it's really the thing is I found that it, there's we've had a really great mix of people who come out to wordplay. Um, we have like really super indie developers who are who are doing very experimental uh, games. And we have uh, people who are a bit more um, well-established um, uh, creators of, of games, both kind of more commercial and also more experimental. And then we actually have a lot of um, writers and, and designers for, for some of the larger studios and some of the AAA studios who've come out uh, as well. And one of the, um, one of the first things that I did when I, I took over with uh, Wordplay in uh, a, couple, a few years ago was I actually, I got together a panel of AAA game writers to talk about indie games because uh, I kept running into like indie developers who were like saying, ah, oh, you know, AAA developers, they just, they're all, all they're interested in is playing their Assassin's Creed games and stuff like that. And I was like, what? Have you met any of these people? Because <laughs> I, like, I, I knew a bunch of them just through uh, game writer circles. Um, and just to kind of go with what you said before, is like a, a lot of game writers um, are, they're just, they're really friendly and really nice people, and they're very generous with their time. And uh, so it's a really great sort of community. But I had met like these AAA developers, and whenever we were like hanging around and like talking, you know, talking shop with the industry, they would talk about like these indie games that they were playing that they just freaking loved. And so it just, I was so surprised that a lot of these, the, the, indie developers just had this idea that like AAA game developers didn't know or care about indie games. So 
I made this panel of, of, of game developers, AAA ones, just to talk about their love of indie games. And uh, that went over, like, super well. And I, I hope that it kind of showed that, like, we're, like, most of these game developers, we're all playing each other's games. Right, and yeah. One of the reasons that the, the AAA developers love playing indie games is because they have that room to be more experimental and to try out new things that, you know, some of the, uh, the larger IPs won't, won't necessarily get into that, the, the weird little experiments and stuff because they have, you know, their next blockbuster game to put out. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, as they mentioned, I've spoken to some of the, we can call them like big names in the adventure game community. And at first, mm-hmm. when I asked them if they wanted to speak, uh, I thought, no, they're going to say, you know, we don't know you. Why would we? But the vast majority have said yes and enthusiastically so that and they're very happy to to talk. And uh, even when I went to Boston for Narrowscope, they were mm-hmm. all really, really nice and AdventureX as well. So it's a, it's a really good community. And as well, you know, you see online and on Twitter. Now, I know there's a lot of negativity on social media, but what I can see with the adventure game community and the interaction fiction community, a little bit for, from what I'm involved, is everyone is so supportive of each other that there's no real competitors. Like, I have to sell more games than the other developer. You know, they're saying, no, look, check this game out. And... Let's, and with Kickstarter as well, saying let's all see if we can help these developers reach their goal. And when they go to these conferences like Wordplay and AdventureX and Narrowscope, they're all talking to each other, mm-hmm. giving each other advice. And it's really, really great to see. You know, it uh, really makes me kind of more positive in humanity and society. That Oh, yeah. That, I mean, I uh, love it. It's yeah. one of the reasons that I, I love being involved with uh, with. Uh, with making games is because I've, I've met so many wonderful, like kind, generous people. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's very enheartening. And I, it's funny too, because I kind of, uh, I kind of joke sometimes about things like, um, adventure X because every year, uh, for the last few years, adventure X has, has fallen on the same weekend as wordplay. Right. So it's like, Oh, it's the competition, but it's like, no, <laughs> They're not the competition at all. Like we're we're both we both support each other. Like we're sure. we're like tweeting at each other and like I'm like <laughs> Adventure X. If you're over there, you know, check it out. Jump jump in. It's a it's a great thing. And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, wordplay. You should go. And so it's you know. And then I remember somebody had, when uh, when Nariscope had gotten announced and stuff. They were like, oh look, there's this other like narrative games conference and i'm like that's amazing i want more of that there should be more of these these conferences going on like i'll send any everybody to go to nariscope because i don't feel like that's taking away from like you know our conference at all there's there's plenty of room for everybody in this right and there are different locations as well so you know in canada you have uh, your word uh, play conference then in Boston this year with for well mainly the the Americans mm-hmm. and then in Venturex is well mainly for the Brit although British but now it has expanded um, and yeah again what I see is everyone supports one another and it's the same people go to the same conferences so 
Um, but this year, I believe uh, you're on the week after Adventure X. So um, I believe is it uh, is it November? Well, you can you can probably say when is the Wordplay conference on this year? Yeah, so this year it's on uh, Saturday, November 9th, and uh, Sunday, November 10th. And uh, like I said, it's at the Toronto Reference Library, which is basically right at uh, the intersection of uh, Young and Bloor in Toronto, so really easy to find. Yeah, so that's the week after Adventure X, so anybody who's been at Adventure X, I uh, want to go to Canada for a weekend, <laughs> that right. uh, might be a good good thing to do. And now before... before uh, finish as well. You mentioned as well there was kind of like an arcade uh, showcase as well. Um, mm-hmm. Did I hear? So, well, what can you tell us about that? What's uh, well, what what can you tell us more detail about that arcade showcase? Sure. Okay. Uh, so at this point, the um, the submission process, the submissions have closed, but um, every year we we open it up for a, about a month or so and. Um, people can submit their games that are um, related to our theme, which is um, interesting use of writing and words in, in contemporary games. So they can submit it to be in the showcase. And um, once we get all of the submissions, we have uh, we have a jury of uh, game makers who will um, go through the submissions and they'll play the games and then they'll basically vote on which ones will end up um, in the showcase, and we—I mean, we we put as much as we can in, but we only have a limited space. So it usually ends up being about like uh, uh, 20 to 25 games that that go in the showcase. Those are playable over the 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 weekend, so anybody can come in and sit down and play one of the games. It's it's all it's sitting there um, on computers, ready ready to go. Uh, I should mention too that wordplay is free. Like yeah, you don't need to buy a ask. ticket. <laughs> so yeah. it's free, yes. Wow. Oh yeah, yeah. So and it's it's free. It's open to the public. Uh, so we have people kind of wandering in and um, you know didn't know that was happening, and then sitting down and listening to some of the talks, and then going and checking out some of the games, maybe even getting involved with uh, the workshops and stuff. And uh, it's uh, it's been really great and. Like I said, we've kind of been getting uh, more and more numbers uh, every year, more and more people coming in. So, uh, so I guess word is getting around. That word play is a is a good thing to check out. Yeah, and as I mentioned, that similar to what happened with Adventure X, it started off very small and it got bigger and bigger and bigger, and now it's uh, a big adventure gaming conference uh, in partnership mm. with the British Library. So it's great to see that word play as well is. Is on the similar road. It's getting bigger as well and more uh, better known. And uh, are most of the people who go there are they mostly locals from Toronto and Canada, or do you have more people from abroad coming? We've uh, we started having more people from abroad coming. Uh, um, we've uh, certainly some of our uh, our guests uh, speakers and that have have come from abroad. Uh, last year we had uh, Greg Buchanan who'd come in from uh, from the UK. Uh, to give a talk, and um, uh, Laura Michette, who uh, came from California, and uh, actually Arthur uh, Protasio, who came from Brazil, to give a talk, which was, uh, wow. was kind of amazing. Yeah, um, so so we have a lot of people sort of coming 
primarily from uh, the States and uh, other parts of Canada um, to, to check things out. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I mean, I hope more people will come from other, other parts of the world too. Oh, well, we shall, we shall see. And our talks and game submissions, are they still live or have they closed by now? Yeah, I think at that point, uh, all, all the submissions will be closed. And uh, hopefully we'll be uh, in a position to start making some announcements about uh, who the speaker, speakers are going to be and who's going to be in the, uh, in the arcade. Uh, something I should uh, mention, too, is that anyone who gets into the arcade um, they actually gets uh, paid an artist's fee. And that's part of what um, the Hand-Eye Society is about, is uh, sort of recognizing... Uh, game development as an art form. And so to do that, you you have to start treating it like an art form. So it's like if it's going to be in a, in a showcase, then we're going to pay artist fees, which is sort of the standard practice for, um, like if we were going to have a curated art show, then uh, we would be paying our artists an artist fee. And so if we're going to do that with video games, why wouldn't we do the same thing? So, cool. Okay, that's again very, very nice of you guys. It shows that you guys really support the developers, uh, which Absolutely. is really important as well. I mean, not just about you know the money, but also like showing that you guys really want to help them, which is the whole again point. <laughs> uh, yeah, we do. So. And uh, I know a lot of the artists have um, have gone on to say that uh, the. Uh, the attention that they've got from being in our showcase has actually been really great and helped help them a lot in um, either getting feedback that they can use to uh, to improve their their craft or just having people come and play their games because um, a lot of times it's it's hard to get people to actually find your game and and want to play it um, and it's it's just because there are there's so much out there now that it's nice to have something like a curated showcase where we can say, hey, look, here's some you can play. You're just hanging out in the library today. Why why not give these these a try? Yes, no, absolutely. Because there are so many games now. Just on Steam, you know, there are mm-hmm. hundreds, if not thousands, of new games nearly every day, every week now. That it's so hard to get noticed. So this is a really great way for the games to get noticed. Um, you mentioned Hypnospace Outlaw, which yep. has gone on to win awards. So uh, so you never know. It's uh, the games that are uh, submitted and that are showcased at Wordplay. So, uh, well, it sounds great. I will see. I will hopefully try to make it, if not this year, next year. But we can talk now after uh, this. But uh, where can people find out more about Wordplay then, if they wanted to find out? Sure. Um well, you can go to the WordPlay uh, webpage. So, actually, you want to go to the Hand Eye Society website, and that would just be www.handeyesociety.com. And then for the WordPlay page, it would be handeyesociety.com/slash/wordplay. And there you are. Okay, and you find all the information there. So, wow, no, we've covered a lot today. Um, so where can people find out more about you then? So I know we've covered Tailspinners, we've covered 
your studio. Mm-hmm. So for, for, first of all, your own studio. Uh, where can people find out more about that studio? Yeah, uh, I have a um, I have a website. It's uh, ironiciconicstudios.com. And okay, yeah. that has links to a lot of my work, uh, writing work and uh, game development work. Um, it also has uh, all of my um, social media links as well. So uh, people can find me through there is probably the easiest way. Okay, so you're on uh, see Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn? Yes. Okay, cool. And we also talked about Tailspinner, so that's, I believe, tailspinner.co.uk and then WordPlay. Mm-hmm. So, uh, cool. Is there anything else now before we finish that you'd like to to tell people listening at all so I can let you close us out? I don't really have anything to say except play more games. Enjoy okay, life. cool. <laughs> and that, that's, uh, that sounds great. That's a great way, I think, to, to finish off this interview well chris tihor i hope i got that right this time you did <laughs> Probably thank not. you thank you so much for for joining me it's been a real real pleasure finding out all the things you're working on and again i would recommend that people really check out all the links to check out your website and tail spinners and of course wordplay as well and i will include links i'll include more information on those as well and wordplay in particular as well as we get it so thank you very much chris Oh, thank you, Sersha. So I hope you enjoyed that interview. Thank you so much again to Chris for agreeing to speak to me. I really enjoyed our chat. And if you are in the Toronto area on November 9th and 10th, be sure to check out the Wordplay conference. It looks really, really good. I will do my very best to see if I can make it. If not this year, then hopefully next year. But we will see. And also, if you're a game developer and you would like some experts to help you with dialogue and story, then you can get in contact with Tailspinners as well. Uh, So that is it for this week. Uh, Next week, I will be joined by Jan Serra from Scarecrow Studios, who are working on 13 Minutes to Midnight. And they have a Kickstarter coming out on September 4th. So that was a really, really fun conversation I had with Yan. So until then, have a great week and a great weekend, everyone. Bye. So if you like the Adventure Games podcast, then please subscribe, rate and review. Wherever you listen to podcasts, please leave a review on iTunes if you can, as every review helps, and reviews will help get the word out, especially for adventure game developers who appear on the podcast. Now, you can also follow me on social media. You can follow me on Twitter at AdventGamePod. You can follow me on Facebook at Adventure Games Podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram at Adventure Games Podcast as well. And we're also on Discord at Adventure Games Podcast. So if you are a Adventure Game developer or Adventure Game player, you can follow us there. So again, please feel free to retweet and share podcast episodes and the podcast to people who you believe may enjoy it and you can also find more information about the podcast on www.adventuregamespodcast.com so until next time thank you
Thank mm-hmm. you.